Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatak along with Sean Karnicki. And say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. No, okay. So every week we get together and we try to talk about recent cases that have come down that affect a plaintiff's practice, particularly in California. They may be from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court. Try to talk about interesting issues that affect your practice. Uh, and this week is certainly no exception. So we're going to talk about a few cases. Before we do that, Sean, tell them where they can find us. Uh, they can find us online at uh, kbklawyers.com. You can read more about us or on all social media pa- platforms at Cabotec LLP. Um, and if you can, we'd love to hear back from you and get some feedback. So like us, rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify. Tell us what we can do better. Tell us case things you'd like us to talk about besides just cases or if there's an interesting yeah. case you want us to focus on. Tell us on. if you think we're boring, if you think Brian's boring, please if you think do he's that. not funny. Please don't do no, that. Please, please. I, I welcome that. All right. What are we going to talk about this week? So we have a good lineup of cases, very practical stuff actually today. Uh, first, we have a FIHA case and new trial motions and the standards for reviewing those. Then we're going to have a discussion about attorney's fees in lemon law cases, and that's applicable to other areas of the law as well. And next, we have a little cautionary tale or a reminder about Medicare, medical liens, and personal injury cases. And then we have an attorney fee case, which arises out of a civil rights action, but it's I think applicable and it's a bigger discussion to have just about uh, a lot of the plaintiff's practice. Then we're going to talk about RFAs and actually using them and uh, costs for proving the truth of something that was denied in an RFA and a practical case to cite to when you're doing that. And lastly, we're going to talk about the burden of proof for establishing or, or reducing a future damages award to present cash value. All of them are, I think, pro plaintiff decisions, most of them at least, and very practical. So let's get started with the first one. So this is sort of like mini law school in 20 minutes for practicing lawyers, right? That's about how long I went to law school for. So right. yeah. how much it, is, it is law school. But yeah. it is sort of Iraq, you know, issue, it, it is. rule, analysis, conclusion. Right? It is. Last night when I was reading these cases, I felt like I was back in law school because I have to sit there and read opinions and kind of have to. Write You're it. mandated. I have to. And I'm like the my, professor. My life depends on it. Yeah. So the first case we're going to talk about today is Pearl versus the city of Los Angeles. This is a second district court of appeal case. Uh, and it's an important case because it involves the practice of remitter, which is where a motion for new trial is filed. And in lieu of granting the new trial, the trial court says, I, I will grant the new trial unless the plaintiff agrees to a reduction in the amount of damages that it's they It's called order. a conditional granting of a new trial. And that sounds weird. It's not that's actually allowed for under the code. What? To, to do a conditional grant of new trial. Right, that and, kind of an and offer. interesting side issue for those of you listening is that a granting of a motion for a new trial is almost never reversible. It's so hard to, uh, it's, I believe it's substantial evidence, uh, and any substantial reason that the court can sustain for um, why they grant a new trial, it'll almost never be reversed in the court of appeal. So in other words, the judge really has to screw it up. Right, because that what they're reviewing is is, is the judges. The, they're not reviewing the jury's decision. They're not reviewing the award. And this case kind of clarifies that they're reviewing the judge's review. Right. So this case has some pretty uh, horrific facts in it, and the the it's an employment case with the city of Los Angeles. Mr. Pearl was an employee. Uh, Mr. Pearl was subject to severe. Uh, severe harassment, and we don't have to go into all the facts, but I can assure you from the facts of this case, it was severe harassment um, involving potentially his sexual preference. Uh, It was awful. The department knew about it. Instead of um, doing anything to punish the wrongdoers, 
I think they actually punished him at some point or disciplined over him. and over. They tried to discipline him. Horrific facts. We don't have to get into the details, but it is it really oh. it shocks the conscience. Over seventeen million dollar verdict. Good for the lawyers that got it. Uh, there was a $10 million in past and $5 million in future non-economic damages. And I believe what the trial court did was conditionally granted a motion for a new trial unless the plaintiff agreed to remitter and the plaintiff reduction agreed. of about $5 million, right? That's right. And the so, plaintiff agreed. So it got reduced to past non-economic damages, got reduced from $10 million to $5 million. And the court recounted in a very good opinion, I think, the trial court. And the Court of Appeal kind of commends him for doing that, uh, the, the record. Right. So the case comes up on appeal because that wasn't enough for the city of Los Angeles. They wanted the whole thing to go away, and they wanted a complete new trial granted. And one of the reasons that they came up with was that it was punitive in nature. They said that the, the verdict was punitive in nature. There were no punitive damages here, and it, but the verdict was punitive in nature. The first problem with that is the city did not specifically, specifically request, nor did they object to the jury instruction, which is 3924, the jury instruction that admonishes a jury not to award punitive damages. Yep, and there's even a record of counsel for both sides being asked, is there any other instruction you want you want included? Nope. Uh, did I read the instructions you requested correctly? Yes, and everyone agreed. So there's a very clear re- record, and that's a, a good strategy here. Make sure because you remember, clarify that. remember, once you end up in the Court of Appeal, the only thing they have is the record. Is the record. They're not independent fact finders. The next thing about that, though, was the plaintiff's lawyer actually argued in his closing argument uh, when he got through the fact that, that nothing short of 5 to $10 million would compensate him for his pain and mental suffering, went on to say, quote, Plaintiff is not entitled to a penny more or a penny less in damages what will match the harm he suffered. So in some respects, the plaintiff's lawyer was actually giving his own um, instruction not to give punitive damages. Yeah, and uh, I think that was a very good strategy on his part because it's kind of a, a backstop against the argument of this was meant to punish or plaintiff's counsel argued that um, defendant here should be punished. So ultimately what the Court of Appeal is reviewing here is not the jury's award, but they're looking at whether or not the uh, trial court erred in issuing the remitter order or issuing their ruling on the new trial motion. Right, so it's an abuse of discretion standard. Right. right. So they have to find that, that they abuse the discretion. And the city was asking to reduce the award because it shocked the conscience and cannot stand. And they said, that's not our standard review. We don't review based on that. And then they went on in this case. And maybe this is a good lesson for all of us who practice in this area at all, is that there was significant evidence at trial from medical experts about the effect of the emotional distress here. Right. I think that's a fact from the case that does require us uh, to discuss a little bit. The plaintiff here was so traumatized as a result of the emotional distress and was so stressed out that it actually had physical impacts on him. He developed a heart condition that didn't exist prior to any of these incidents, which impacted his brain even, and the experts testified, and I think this was uncontroverted, that it may affect his brain down the line and it might lead to early onset dementia. So the the emotional distress here was real, both past and future emotional and distress. And the plaintiff lawyers did a great job of putting that evidence on, of putting it in front of the jury because one of the hardest things to ever convince a jury of is how much emotional stress damages your client should receive. So they did a good job. They should be commended for it. And obviously, 
the verdict with the remitter of the $5 million reduction, still over $12 million, um, was upheld, and that's that case. All right. And, let's- and that, and by the way, we've recently done a few uh, oppositions to motions for new trial, and I could say after reading this, this is like a kind of anthology or a good primer on the standards that apply. So if you have to oppose one of those motions, take a look at a case like this. You know, you can even call us and discuss it with us because we have had some recent big successes on, on, on those types of motions. Let's go to Lemon Law. Lemon Law, the next case. Lemon Law. Hannah versus Mercedes-Benz. Uh, this is a classic Lemon Law case. What's also Lemon Law? Also coming out of Los Angeles. So Lemon Law, which the formal name of it is the Song-Beverly Consumer Warranty Act, says that if a car is defective, the manufacturer is required to replace it and pay some sort of compensation. In fact, the type of compensation that's required or the damages you can seek in a Lemon Law case are the actual damages, so the value of the car, things like that, civil penalties of two times the actual damages, but that's only if you prove that the, the, the conduct of the manufacturer was willful. And then, if you prevail, attorney's fees and costs. This is in the statute. It's mandated by the code. It, it, it's, not, you know, it's not necessarily discretionary. Um, if you prevail, you get the attorney's fees and costs, and that's what's at issue in this case. So quickly, the facts in this case pretty much seem not to be in dispute that the car was a lemon, and that they were litigating with Mercedes-Benz, and Mercedes-Benz was making a series of 998 offers to try to get the case settled. They made one in early 2016, which required um, the plaintiff to surrender the vehicle, and in response to that, uh, the plaintiff's lawyer served objections to the 998, which is a very clever idea. I've never done that. I think that's a clever idea, serve an objection to a 998 if there's some defect in it to let them know. And one of the objections was, the car had been in a wreck and was a total loss, so we can't return the car to you. That doesn't relieve you of liability. Uh, and in fact, um, there were other factors there, like I didn't know the terms of the release, what was going to happen. Right. So a full year later, Mercedes-Benz says serves another 998 that cleans up some of those issues, which is accepted and allows the plaintiff to bring a motion for attorney fees. So what is the accepted standard in Lemon Law for the recovery of attorney fees? Um, it has to be reasonable and it can be the hour the value the hourly value of your work um here defendant argued and the court agreed that it should be the trial court the trial court agreed um erroneously we'll find out later that it should be limited to don't can, preview people on what's sorry happen. spoiler you, you, alert. Ro- you, you spoiler alert. excitement spoiler alert okay, okay let's go back the trial court said that the plaintiff's counsel is limited to a contingency fee percentage of part of the recovery and they came up with this kind of strange odd formula for calculating oh they had the all fees. kinds of crazy arguments it should be limited to the the earlier 998, not the later one, any fees after that were improperly incurred. Yeah, and the Court of Appeal comes in and says, no, this is all wrong. The act is very clear. You get the value, the lodestar, what's called a lodestar value of the fees incurred based on an hourly rate. And this case has actually, something Brian pointed out, a very practical um, uh, excerpt in there of portions of the retainer agreement between the the plaintiff here and their counsel, which specifically provides that you get your actual damages, our fees will be based on the fee award that's granted on the, the time court. expended. So on they, the time they ex- say, yeah. they, and I like this because it's a good model. And then we'll kind of talk beyond lemon law because most people don't do lemon law. The retainer agreement said we are going to charge our regular time. Yep, but it's a contingent 
upon either an accepted settlement being achieved or a successful verdict at trial. So well-written uh, retainer agreement, commend him for the retainer agreement. And um, what really I think is important about this case, the court ultimately does say, hey, under Song Beverly, you're entitled to your hours, not to a contingency fee. I mean, it's actually in the statute. It specifically says a fee award under this act may not be based on a percentage of the plaintiff's recovery. It's, it's unequivocal about that. They also point out that while the court can consider the retainer agreement in deciding the fees and awarding the fees, they also go on to say that this trial court fundamentally misinterpreted the agreement and then misapplied its own mistaken interpretation to the determination of the reasonableness of fees. And that's, that's a quote from the case. So the court misinterprets it and then misimplies the misinterpretation um, I think this is a great case if you're doing uh, lemon law types of cases. But I think it's a great case even if you're not doing lemon law because one of the things I I have argued about, and sometimes very successfully in court, but I've argued generally that we shouldn't be always limited to just the contingent fee. If a client can't afford to pay a lawyer on an hourly basis and then prevails, and it doesn't matter what kind of case. It could be a bad faith case where there's attorney fees. It could be a business case. It could be a... um, a statutory case, but they they pursue that kind of case just because the client can't afford to pay an hourly lawyer doesn't mean that the lawyer shouldn't be limited to the to the a third or forty or forty five percent fee that's being charged. It's something we've been successful with, and not to again toot our own horn, but these the last two cases happen to be things that we've recently dealt with. And if this is something you're having an issue with, you know, we'd be happy to talk about that. So Hannah versus Mercedes Benz, good case to read. Next case is about medical liens, Medicare liens in personal injury cases. Lomelli versus State Department of Healthcare Services. Also out of the Second District Court of Appeal. Yep. Uh, and probably an important case for most people who do plaintiff's work because you have to deal with these liens, the ever expanding area of liens. This is a Medi-Cal lien. Uh, this was a um, birth injury case, med mal birth injury type case, at least that's what it appeared on its face. And they settled the case for $4 million. They went through a minor's compromise. The minor's compromise was approved. And then the... um, The department moved to impose a $267,000 lien, and the trial court granted their motion and imposed that lien. So the plaintiff here is appealing the trial court granting of that motion to impose a lien on the whole case. Correct. And, uh, you know, kudos to the plaintiff's lawyers and the appellate lawyers in this case for, for a nice attempt, a good try, because the first thing they did was they pointed to the minor's compromise order after following the petition, and they said in one section of that order, it said past medical expenses zero. And they were trying to argue that that meant that there was collateral estoppel. Because there were no past medical expenses in the order, the state had no right to recover. And, hey, it's a, it's a creative argument. Good it's, attempt, it's a creative right? Argument. It's creative. And we're not being sarcastic. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty well, creative maybe argument. a little sarcastic. Okay, but, but I mean, the problem with it is that um, they weren't. And the court pointed this out. They weren't. The state wasn't parties to that action to the to the minors' compromise. They didn't approve it. They didn't know. And on top of everything else. Shot, wasn't there a statement that the, the Yeah, I think the counsel, the, the Court of Appeal points out that somewhere in the record, counsel represented that the petition, the minors' comp petition that uh, they were trying to rely on, they said, quote, it did not address the Medi-Cal lien at all. 
So, you know, between the fact that it's not a real decision, the statements made by counsel, it, it, the, the Court of Appeals said, no, that argument's not going to fly. So the next thing they tried was they tried to come up with a, a new theory called best case scenario. And under that theory, the lien had to be reduced by first looking at the best case scenario for the lawsuit. So in this case, I think they said the actual value of the lawsuit was $18.9 million. We only recovered four. So you would take the actual amount of settlement, divide it by the hypothetical best case, and then you would determine what percentage of giant reduction would occur. And again, very clever, very novel, but completely rejected, and they said that doesn't work. Because it's subject every, to manipulation. It's super hypothetical. How are you going to verify this? You know, every settlement results in a case settling usually for less money than it's actually worth, or at least the plaintiff's lawyer think it's worth. But what the court said was the, the, the proper method here, and of course, the best method, in my humble opinion, is negotiating and trying to get the best reduction on your lien. If you're not able to do that yourself, hire an outside service to do it but make a deal and try to negotiate. I think the biggest lesson from this case is that the uh, state is out there enforcing these types of liens. Sure. Uh, I think it's a cautionary tale, um, you know, and creative arguments won't get you out of it. So be aware of them. Like Brian said, negotiate them. That's hey, what, the that's the what actual do. amount of this lien was over $367,000. So the court said that the department um, utilized a standard called the reality-based approach, which is to take the actual lien reduce it by 25% and then 25% of the cost. So 25% for attorney fees. And the issue I had with that was you you think that's statutory, right, Sean? That yes. it's statutory. The the issue with that is the actual attorney fees might be much more. I don't know. This is minor's compromise. I don't know if they asked for 25% fees or a 30% or a third or what the award of fees were. But it seems to me that the right way to do it would be the actual amount of its fees because the lawyer charged fees. The client shouldn't have to be sort of double hit on that. And then um, and then the same issue with respect to cost, the same proportional share of cost. However, um, the reality-based approach has this 25%, another reason why you should try to negotiate these liens and not ignore them. So next, we have this case called Gilroy versus Michelle Hill. It's coming out of Orange County, 4th Appellate District. Um, it involves a civil rights action b- brought on behalf of a number of people that were... Apparently, they were... Set some, of facts. Yeah, it's it's some New Year's Eve party gone bad. No, Halloween party. I think okay. it's a Halloween party. Are those different? What are you dressing up as for Halloween this year? I'm party? coming and going as Brian Cabotek. That's interesting. That's it's fair. a great costume. That's funny. That's a hilarious costume. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate yeah, that. Would that would be hilarious. Yeah. And so it's a Halloween party that went into the late hours. There were tons of people in some mansion and some... Um, law enforcement agency believed, uh, it seems like incorrectly, that it was actually a casino. Right. There was gambling going on, so they busted the party with like 100 There's SWAT officers. There's gambling in this establishment. I'm shocked. shocked. I'm shocked. shocked. That's a Casablanca reference. Um, that, that movie came out when, were you in high school when it came out? Or? Yeah, just move on. Yeah, okay. Uh, I forgot to make old jokes today. Uh, but anyway, 100 SWAT officers come in, and the only- 100 def- SWAT officers. And I'm not exaggerating. That's what the case yeah, says. Know. I'm not exaggerating. But the only defendant that plaintiffs were able to keep on the hook here was some investigator with the Orange County Sheriff's Department named Michelle Hill, who, I guess, interrogated people while they were being held, and then they were let out eventually in the afternoon. 
from so from the I guess they held them almost overnight or from the early hours in the morning, pre-dawn hours to the afternoon. Twisted procedural history in this case. Initially, the went case up for appeal, out, yeah. coming back on appeal. More defendants getting thrown out. But what happens like, at the end of the day? What did what did plaintiffs recover here? How much did they recover? What was the whopping verdict? Oh, wasn't it, it was like less than ten thousand dollars? Was five thousand four hundred dollars for all plaintiffs, and it's a group of eleven uh, or twelve plaintiffs total got awarded collectively five thousand four hundred dollars. Well, and and then the plaintiffs' lawyers went on to make a fairly reasonable attorney fee application for their work, right? Which was how much? Three point eight million. Three point eight million. You know, and this is a case. I mean, what's I'll, the multiplier there? We should find out. I, I don't mean to criticize the lawyers involved in this case. They obviously put tons of time and years of hard work into this case. But I do have a saying uh, when it comes to um, any sort of situation in life where people seem like they go cross the line, they go a little too far. What's that saying? Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And to me, this is a classic example of potentially making bad law because of bad facts. So now there's this decision on the books, and the first thing the court says is that, the, and I mean the Court of Appeal, is there might be circumstances where it's totally appropriate to throw out the um, entire attorney fee award because the amount recovered was so small it could have been recovered in small claims court. Yeah, it wasn't just the discrepancy between the award and the verdict and the uh, attorney fees that were being sought. It was the manner in which this was presented. Um, right, I get it. But I, my concern is is that in the future, defendants are going to point to this case exactly. and they're going to say... exactly. The ward was so small it could have been obtained in small claims or limited jurisdiction court, and so um, the whole attorney fee should be thrown out, which is wrong because 1983 and civil rights are important cases to bring, and lawyers should be compensated for bringing them, even if the recovery at the end of the day is nominal. It's still important to bring These are good statutes. They incentivize lawyers taking on cases that otherwise might not be lucrative. Um, and they wouldn't take it on, as we know in the contingency world, like most of our listeners, all, all five of them, um, you know, they do contingency work, and they often represent people that can't afford, that would never be able to pay for this type of legal representation if it was on a on a cash hourly basis. So it, this is important. These types of cases and these fee statutes are important. This is a set of bad facts. Bad facts. And here are some, everyone. let me go over some of these bad facts. Yeah, the, the bad facts are kind of, you know, interesting here. And, and you know, obviously any opinion puts the spin on it that the party writing the party, the justice writing the party puts. But in here, they focus on the fact there wasn't a single declaration or chart that clearly and concisely set forth the number of hours billed. Um, there was no attempt to separate the bills. There was no attempt to call through attorney's fees pertaining to the appeal. They referred to the victory as um, py- Pyrrhic? Pyrrhic. Pyrrhic. Pyrrhic victory. And yeah. I looked up the definition of that, and according to Google, it says... One at too great a cost to have been worth worthwhile for the victor, which is, I mean, right. And the plaintiffs lost case. all of their theories except one. And here's the, some of the things they really focused on: uh, they sought attorney fees for work in matters involving um, actions other than against Defendant Hill, the one defendant remaining in the case. Work performed in connection with claims of plaintiffs who didn't prevail. Work performed on behalf of plaintiffs against defendants who were dismissed voluntarily, work performed on behalf of theories or parties that were dismissed by the court, duplication of effort, uh, clerical work that was performed by attorneys, time act entries so redacted you can't determine what work was performed. I don't know, most entries and 
your bills never need to be redacted. Pervasive padding, and then the list goes on and on and yeah. on. So I don't want to say I could have, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but and I don't want to play, you know, Monday morning quarterback. But if they didn't do these things, if they didn't do the crazy, you know, not separating the bills, block billing, padding, and they made a smaller request. I think they they might have had a shot at getting Might have had proof. a shot. We don't know. But now we got a bad case on the books. Right. And, and I don't like this case. And I'll tell you what I really don't like about it. And I wrote it in the, in the column of opinion, the, the March of opinion, PAGA, Private Attorney General. That's right. And when I'm worried, you're going to see this appear other places because they refer to PAGA. They refer to um, Private Attorney General theories. So be careful. Bad facts make bad law. And what else, Sean? Pigs get fat. Hogs get slaughtered. Uh, next case, Sam C. versus State Farm. This is a bright light case. Very good. Um, also from the second uh, district court of appeal. Well, the last case was from the fourth. That's Most right. of our I'm cases done. today are from the second, second DCA, but that was from the fourth. Uh, Samsky's from the second DCA, and this deals with the problem that a lot of people have complained about, which is what's the use of a request for admission? What's the point of request for admissions? And this court answers it. This was a UIM case where uh, there were requests for admissions, the most notable of which were State Farm admit that um, the insured was not negligent and admit that the insured's negligence, if any, was not a substantial factor. They denied both. And then there were a bunch of, there were six others about injury and damage and substantial factor and traumatic brain injury, and they were all denied. They go to arbitration. They get a favorable award out of arbitration. The case comes to the Superior Court for um, affirmation of the award and for fees and, and for costs. costs for for proving the truth of the matters denied in those RFAs. And this is a very good ruling. Again, this is another one of those. I think this is the third case today where I would say you should go ahead and read it if you're ever dealing with the situation. This one probably the most because this is the most common. You're going to have RFAs in all types of cases. So you should definitely read this. The trial court says eh, this doesn't matter. Um, there's some exceptions well, here. Well, they actually plaintiff. Go on, sorry to interrupt, but they also go on. I'm not really sorry. But they go on to say um, – that uh, it's the plaintiff's burden to establish Which this, is what right? I was going to say. The, the trial court says, plaintiff, tell us why these exceptions don't apply, because the, the, the statute here is uh, CCP section 2033, which is a good read. Um, but the trial court says, tell us why the exceptions here don't apply. And what are those exceptions, Brian, in 2033? The, uh, the exceptions, so thanks for throwing me a softball there. The exceptions are... Yeah, just read the, for us, Brian, the please. The objection... Uh, to the request was sustained or a response to it was waived. The admission sought was no substantial importance. Uh, there was a reasonable belief that the party would prevail, and there was other good cause, basically. And if you don't meet those exceptions, what, what, what has to be required there? What's the first sentence over there? If you don't meet those, the court shall. Then that's shall pretty strong, right? Shall. Grant costs yeah. for failing. So, the whole point behind request for admissions when the act went into effect in 1986, no jokes, please, Sean, is that it was intended to make request for admissions helpful in litigation and to move a litigation forward and, and try to get things resolved. Because, because it saves time. Because a price to pay for saying somebody was um, negligent or not negligent and, and knowing better than that. I mean, I've been in trials before where they admit liability on the first day of trial. So you, you spend all that time and effort trying to get there, and then they just submit liability. So um, request for admission should have a point. And the point here was, first, 
It's the party's burden who's trying to use an exception to a statute to establish that. And they found State Farm did not do that. In, in general. Case. And that's a general rule. And I think I'm going to say the case name here. It's Simpson Strong Tie Co. versus Gore. Not Al Gore. Al Gore? No, not Al Gore. Al Gore. I, it he could invented be Al Gore. the internet. It he actually could be Al Gore getting sued by a Thai company. Who knows? But but that case specifically says that a party seeking to benefit from, from an exception bears the burden of establishing that exception, not just in these RFA cases, in generally in, in California law. Right. And then it's the party's burden to establish that. And if they don't establish it, in this case, they said there was substantial evidence that State Farm failed to prove that it had any reasonable grounds to deny, which is probably something we can all agree on. And then the arbitrator found enough findings, even though they're not directly on point, enough findings that, for example, State Farm's medical experts were not credible. And then the part I like about the case best is that they said that requests for admissions, the, the, the rejection or denial of a request for admission that later found it to be not true at trial, where, you know, you win – um, results in costs, and costs include fees, attorney's fees. Yeah. And they won their attorney's fees, actually, was remanded for consideration. So happy so, ending, good case, Samsky, that's S-A-M-S-K-Y versus State Farm. Happy, happy case. Our last case today is a case called Lewis versus Ukran, U-K-R-A-N, and uh, this case involves sort of a nuanced issue, but if you try cases, you've encountered it, and that's what to do with reducing an award for future damages to present cash value. And what's the general point behind re- reducing future damages to present cash value? Money awarded for the future is worth less now because your money that you have now can grow. So if you're awarded money for medical care for the rest of your life, it should be reduced to the present cash value. Right, and this was a... Um, pretty good straightforward case where they they tried it to the bench they tried it to a, a judge no jury um which is something i almost never would do and it's somebody that i respect in this case so he must have had a good read of the of the um of the judge to do that they got in a verdict of about 1.7 million dollars of which a substantial portion, $1.2 million was for future lost earnings and $300,000 was future medical. And the defendant comes out and appeals and says it was the court's sole responsibility on its own to establish um, or the to, present cash value. Yeah, or to or reduce the award to present cash value. And it says because of that, there should be a new trial granted. The trial court should have done this. The trial court didn't do this. And this is actually, I think you were surprised, Brian, um, that this is a novel issue and it hasn't well, been. It's, it's it an issue of first impression yeah. that yeah. there's apparently no published decision directly on point in California on this. There is in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit says it's the party asserting the reduction. So in this case, it would be the defendant saying you have to reduce it to, to present cash value, whose burden is to establish what present cash value is. And the reason I was surprised is I've had trials before where I brought economists in to do this because it was unclear. It never crossed my mind that there should have been a case on this. And this case says, we're publishing this opinion, and it's the defendant's burden, or it's the burden of the party trying to assert the present cash value. 
It's their burden. And if they don't meet that burden, then too bad, too sad, the plaintiff doesn't have any Those obligation. numbers stand. Yeah, I, I've seen this in trial, and there's always some motion pending or there's an argument by defense that um, you, you shouldn't be able to state these numbers. It's prejudicial. They have to be reduced to present cash value. If you don't reduce it, you don't get to say it. That's not true. If they think it should be reduced, let them put on an economist or someone to sit there and reduce the numbers. It's an evidentiary issue. That's the Ninth Circuit says. That's what this court says. And because it's an evidentiary issue, that party who's asserting it has to come out with the evidence and assert the evidence. And of course, if, if that's the case in, in the future, and you're in a case, and the defendant's designated economist or somebody to establish it, um, you might want to think about supplemental designation to have your own. Uh, you might want to check. I mean, a lot of this is pretty math-oriented, and there isn't a lot of room for dispute. The way we've dealt with it sometimes is by stipulating, just saying this is the amount, this is what we're going to read to the jury, is what we're seeking. So Time Lewis, that's L-E-W-I-S versus Ukran, U-K-R-A-N. Another good case. Read this one as well. That's all we got today. Uh, I hope these cases are helpful. I thought they were really interesting. Sometimes we do these and, and the cases are not so interesting. Or, they're or you're not dry. so interesting. I'm always maybe interesting. Sometimes I'm, I'm fascinated. Interesting. I'm fascinated with me. Says you. I am. Says you and the people you pay. So thanks for joining us. Um, really like to hear your feedback. There's ways to reach us. We, we try to get these out every single week to educate you on the law. Again, we're online at kbklawyers.com. You could shoot us an email there, or you can find us on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP. Please rate us, review us, whatever, even if it's bad reviews. We want to hear from you. No! Bad, bad reviews for Brian specifically. We'd love to hear about that. Thanks, everyone.